Hi, I'm Eric Goldwine, and you're listening to the Nursing Home 411 podcast. I'm really excited to share this interview with research scientist Beth Niven, where we chat about all things COVID-19 vaccine. We talk about the risks and benefits for long-term care residents. We talk about the history, the science, uh, and we also debunk a lot of the myths that are floating around, not just about the COVID-19 vaccines, but about flu vaccines and vaccinations in general. You can find our show on our website, nursinghome411.org, as well as Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Here's our music by Silverman Sound Studios. Hi, Beth. Thanks for coming on to our podcast. Uh, for those that didn't attend our webinar, we had a webinar where Beth spoke about vaccine safety uh, and the, the COVID-19 vaccine and what's going on, what are the myths, what are the facts. And uh, it was such a great program that I decided to have her on our podcast. Uh, welcome. Welcome to the Nursing Home 411 podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's yeah, really my so, pleasure. Yeah. So you've had, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to kind of summarize your resume, uh, three decades in public health, two, two decades working, working in long-term care settings, talking to staff about mostly about uh, flu vaccines. Uh, you are a certified ombudsman uh, and can you just tell me a little bit more about your experience with vaccines uh, in general and with uh, with infectious disease programs? So I worked a lot in Africa with tuberculosis and then in the States with TB. Uh, there is no vaccine against tuberculosis, so we wish that there were. Uh, with flu, I started doing surveillance for the New York City Department of Health, and that also that involved looking at nursing homes and ma and helping them manage influenza outbreaks. And while doing that, I went out to nursing homes and I started talking to staff and I realized that there was a really low uptake of staff getting influenza vaccine. And for them to get influenza vaccine really had a big impact on the health of residents. And they weren't getting the vaccine because of so many myths that are out there. Flu vaccine, because people get it every year, it's really built a life of its own regarding the myths around it. So I started developing um, a PowerPoint and then actually just a just to talk to give to staff about how flu vaccine might really impact on their own health and that of their families. And people really seemed to like it. I, it was not a very sophisticated talk. It didn't have a lot of, a lot of uh, data, but it really talked about what vaccine could do for them uh, regarding their protection from getting it in, in their, in their facility and then bring it home to their, to their loved ones. And part of the talk was really looking at all the bits that were out there and trying to hone down those myths. So I'll just give you an example. For H1N1, I remember in 2009, there was just a lot of stuff going on. So I was going out to give talks to all kinds of different venues. And I went to a, a school for medical assistance. So it was really mostly younger people, mostly females. And I walked in one day to give my basic flu talk. And they said to me, as soon as I came in, don't make us go walk, walk backwards. And I said, what are you talking about? They said, you know, the flu vaccine makes you walk backwards. And I said, I had no idea. Well, I don't really watch much TV. But at that time, there was an inside edition 
segment about a very popular charismatic cheerleader who took the flu vaccine and that made her walk backwards. There was no doctor on the TV segment. Nobody could verify whether she actually was walking backwards, but here she was, this beautiful woman talking about walking backwards. When I walked into the school, they said, we know we're going to walk backwards. We don't want to. And I said, I, I've never heard of this, but could I just talk to you about what flu vaccine might have in it? And so I did. And it turned out that later on, this was this inside edition report was a total sham. The women didn't walk backwards on and on and on, but it really caught so many people. And that was a really big obstacle for me at that time, believe it or not, trying to promote H1N1. And I see now somebody sent me a video yesterday of people who took the COVID vaccine and they have huge tremors. And there's a video of somebody just shaking the whole video saying, I took the COVID vaccine and now look at me. And again, no verification from a physician at all. No neurologist came up and said, yeah, she took the vaccine and now she's got these tremors. So there's so many things out there. So my goal is just to let people know what the truth, what the science is behind the vaccines that they'll have the ability to make an informed decision, not a decision made based on whatever they've seen that day or gotten that day sent to them via YouTube or whatever other mechanisms are out there. For me, the health of residents and staff is so important that I really wanted people to learn what flu vaccine can do for them more than to them and try to make that part of their lives in order to protect themselves as an overall health package. So when you were presenting last week, there were two two of my favorite uh, aspects of this. Or one, you had a line: uh, "Nobody knows everything about anything," uh, and it, it was very. It felt like a very scientist uh, kind of caveat. And, and the second was that you spoke about the risks and benefits without necessarily making a blanket recommendation for anyone. You just, you spoke about it in a, um, a very matter of fact way. And you already do this because you have a lot of information and, and experience, experience uh, on the subject. So with that said, I'm going to uh, ask you to kind of go back to the basics uh, and, yeah. and tell us what, what is a vaccine and what's in a vaccine and also what's not in a, in a vaccine. So a vaccine is really something that um, stimulates the production of antibodies and provides immunity against a certain disease. It's a substance that goes into your body that makes you produce antibodies without actually having the pathogen itself. Just to give you an idea, if you remember the history of smallpox vaccine in the 1700s with Jenner, mm -hmm. he's the guy who's credited with, with the beginnings of the smallpox vaccine. Uh, smallpox was a problem in England, and they saw that um, people who work with cattle and milkmaids weren't getting smallpox. They were getting something milder called cowpox. So Jenner actually had a, male, a milkmaid come in one day with cowpox. He took the um, something from her cowpox blister, and he injected that into a young man, a young boy. The young boy got a very very mild illness. And then a few months later, he injected smallpox into this young boy, and the young boy survived. So this cowpox thing that he got from the milkmaid's blister, that was a vaccine against smallpox. Very rudimentary. It was something that he injected a substance to make this young boy produce antibodies. And his body sort of remembered these antibodies. So when he got smallpox 
later on, I mean, Jenner injected him with smallpox. His body was able to mount a defense against smallpox successfully. So that's what a vaccine does. It's a substance, not the actual pathogen, but something resembling that pathogen that makes your body produce antibodies. And then your body has a way to remember that foreign substance. So when you see that substance again in real life, that, that is when you encounter this actual pathogen, this illness, your body has a memory to start producing quickly antibodies and therefore mount a pretty successful defense against this real uh, infection. So that's what it is. And a vaccine comes in, in different ways. Most vaccines, like the flu vaccine, is just an attenuated version of the flu virus. It cannot make illness because you need a certain number of viral particles in order to create symptoms to have illness. So with the, let's say just the flu vaccine, what it does is it's almost dead, but it's, it's got the, the foreign structure that your body recognizes being, oh no, this is not, not native to my body. I've got to start making antibodies. So your body makes antibodies against this almost dead flu virus. And the next time when you encounter flu in real life, your body remembers, oh, I remember this thing that I've seen and it starts mounting antibodies. So most vaccines that we, that we are used to are what we call these vector vaccines, which is either a weakened version of a real virus or a protein subunit of this same virus. So what, what the COVID vaccine is, is neither. It's actually something called messenger RNA. It's a synthetic compound that is introduced into your body. And it was designed to instruct your body to produce something in the COVID virus itself. And that something is the spike protein on the surface of the virus. And this is the thing that enables the virus to get into your cells, replicate, produce illness. So this mRNA, it's said to be new, but it actually isn't new. They started working on this about 30 years ago and really started working on it seriously since 2005. So it's not that new. It's being studied for other vaccines as well as for possible treatments for cancer. And what it is, is just a synthetic compound. And if you remember from your biology, messenger RNA provides the codes to make certain proteins that your body needs to move on. Mm -hmm. So this messenger RNA instructs the body to make a very specific protein, which your body's making. Then your body realizes, wait, this is not something for me. This is foreign. And so then your body starts making antibodies against the spike protein. The messenger RNA is degraded in a few days. So it's not something that's going to remain in your body for those people who think, oh no, is going to stay in my body and tell my body to start producing X, Y, and Z. It doesn't do that. It does its job. It tells your body to produce the spike protein. Your body does that. Then your body realizes this is foreign to it, starts making antibodies for it. And then those instructions for the antibodies remain in your body. That's your memory component. And when you encounter coronavirus again in real life with a spike protein, your body says, hey, this is foreign. And I have something in my memory to start combating this foreign thing in my body. So that's what the, what the coronavirus vaccine, that's what it does. I know you've heard about 
some anaphylactic reactions. Anaphylactic occurs, again, at a certain rate, a couple per million. It occurs, might occur spontaneously, might occur in people who have very, very severe allergic reactions. So let's say shellfish. Anaphylaxis is a very sudden reaction after introduction to this allergen or whatever it is. You know, your body gets inflamed, your, your throat might swell up, it's very dramatic. And usually people who've had anaphylaxis before carry an EpiPen and they just introduce, they shoot themselves up with epinephrine and they're okay. So they found, again, I don't have the latest figures that there have been about 29 anaphylactic reactions in the first 5 million or so doses of COVID vaccine. So that's a rate of about five, five per million. Again, the rate of the population of anaphylaxis is about one per million. It's a little bit higher, not again, still a rare event. And people want to know, well, what's in the vaccine that might be producing this anaphylaxis? And the one candidate, again, it's not proven at all, but it's just a, a, a thought is it's this, this polyethylene glycol, because it's not in other vaccines, it may be what is giving rise to some of this, again, very, very rare anaphylaxis. And again, just to let you know about anaphylaxis, it's rare, it's easily treatable. It's the reason why you should wait wherever you get the vaccine site, wait there for 15, 30 minutes, because if you were to go into what this anaphylactic reaction, there'll be somebody in this in this setting where you're getting the vaccine to give you epinephrine. All the people who got anaphylactic reactions after the vaccine, they've all done well. They all did not regret getting the vaccine. In fact, they are waiting to get the second dose if they can. Again, it's not clear if they can. So again, anaphylaxis, it's out there. I mean, I'm just not sugarcoated. It's mm -hmm. happened. It's, it's happened at a very rare rate, never been fatal. Uh, and again, it's why you really need to wait 50 to 30 minutes wherever you get the vaccine. Right. And this is different from, I understand that a certain probability of people get like a light fe fever, in some cases, a not so light fever after the vaccine. Uh, and this is, that's different. That's different from the reaction you're talking about, correct? Right. So let me just, again, talk about this and about flu vaccine. When I was speaking about flu vaccine to audiences, everybody would tell me, I've got the vaccine and the next day I felt sick as a dog. I had a fever. I had this. I had that. I've got the flu because of the vaccine. And I said, no, you didn't. When you get the vaccine, your body goes into production of, of antibodies. Your immune system is being revved up. One indication of your immune system being revved up could be this fever, headache. Your body is working. And one way to, man to manifest this working of the immune response is this very short-lived one to two days, some kind of reaction. It's not, a, it's not, you're not getting a mild case of COVID or a mild case of flu after the flu vaccine. You actually, some people see this as actually a good sign. It means that your immune system is being revved up. It's being, it's working. So about 15% of people have gotten some kind of reaction. It could be fatigue. It could be headache. Some people do get um, a soreness at the vaccine site. And a few people I've talked to got, they, they felt uncomfortable. It went away after a day or so. Uh, a lot of people that I've talked to had nothing. Uh, some people did have fatigue the day after. One person, only one person I heard, I talked to said, I felt like garbage, but then it went away. Again, it's not a mild case of COVID. It's really your body's ramping up your immune response. 
it's short-lived. It goes away. You might want to take Tylenol. And that's basically what it is. Yeah. And for, and I, I might connect some dots that maybe aren't there, but Norway recently, this is the headline on a Bloomberg article, uh, Norway warns of vaccination risk for sick patients over 80. And you talk about that one to two day body ramping up. Is there any medical reason why that might be worse for a, say, a nursing home resident with comorbidities? Yeah, is there reason to be more concerned if you're going into this with comorbidities uh, as many nursing home residents uh, have? So um, I don't know about the Norway experience. I mean, I've, I've asked people about it and waited to hear a response. I do speak to nursing homes a lot as part of my current job right now. And I have not heard of anybody having a severe reaction. I, I've asked everybody I speak to. I speak normally with nursing administration folks. And people seem to tolerate it really well. Again, if you remember, I don't know if you do remember what that when the um, uh, federal government was looking at the, at the at the priority groups, there was one holdout. You know, the federal government said that people yeah. in nursing homes should be in the first group. One person said, "I don't know if the, if this should be the first group so you give it to because I'm not quite sure what's going to happen." This person, I forget her name, but she was the only holdout because she felt that nursing home residents may not be well equipped to handle the vaccine well. I have really not heard of severe reaction nurse from residents. And I'm asking everybody I speak to on, on these calls that I make as part of my regular job. So I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I have not heard about it. And I don't know why that should happen. I get the Norway experience. I mean, certainly people looking into it. I don't, I don't have an answer to it. Uh, I'm editorializing, but uh, there's, whether or not there's risks or and, and no matter how big those or small those risks are, uh, the reality is that COVID itself is the, uh, I think we've, we're about 130,000 long-term care related deaths. Um, so there's risks either way, no matter what decision you make um, or what decision is made for your, your loved one. One thing uh, I see with, I've been seeing a lot in headlines uh, with the, in the last couple of weeks is you hear about these extreme events that, that are happening with people who have uh, received the vaccine. And, and one area where I think a journalist, uh, just the general public gets confused is that an unlikely event is, um, has a certain probability of happening to a person, whether they have the vaccine or whether they not have a vaccine. So when an unlikely event happens uh, in the midst of this uh, massive, unfortunately not massive enough vaccination rollout, it gets a lot of attention, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, refer- I think you refer to that as like the, the baseline. I, I, I forget the term you used in the in the presentation, but these, there's a certain baseline level of events. Right. right, so there are events that happen spontaneously in the population. One very, very common one is Guillain-Barre syndrome. You all heard about that. It's something that is usually temporary paralysis, but sometimes can be lifelong. And this occurs at around one per million in the population. And it usually happens after a viral infection of some sort. 
So in 1976, when they were rolling out, again, another flu vaccine, swine flu vaccine, whatever you want to call it, there was a thought that it, gave, it increased Guillain-Barre syndrome, and there was a big panic. So ever since then, people look at flu vaccine as being, is it something that causes Guillain-Barre syndrome? And there are people who do get Guillain-Barre syndrome after getting a flu vaccine. It's not clear if it's a flu vaccine itself or if it's just, again, a Guillain-Barre syndrome occurs in one per million people. That, that's the baseline. That's what they call the background rate. So CDC has been looking at this for years and years, trying to see whether, in fact, flu vaccine does have an increased risk for Guillain-Barre syndrome, and they seem to feel that it doesn't. But again, it's never been really proved that flu vaccine does increase Guillain-Barre syndrome. What we've seen with, let's say, um, with COVID vaccine right now is Bell's palsy. Again, Bell's palsy is something that occurs in the population at a certain rate. And when they did the clinical trials, they saw that, in fact, there were some cases of Bell's, Bell's palsy as a drooping of of the face, it can resolve within a few weeks or a few a few uh, months, but it does. It's very dramatic. So they saw that in the clinical trials, it did occur at a certain rate in both the vaccine arm and the placebo arm. And when they looked at the numbers. The numbers actually were very very similar to what occurs in the general population spontaneously. So there was no increase in Bell's palsy after got after having received the COVID vaccine. Again, things happen in the population a certain a certain amount and when those happen after a vaccine people just really get get worried now what what did happen that is under investigation and what did get a lot of press is a report of a young physician in Florida who got flu vaccine within a number of days had a very very rare platelet issue and he real and he died in a couple of weeks and it's not yeah. clear what happened there. That, that was the COVID vaccine, not the flu. Sorry, the, sorry, the COVID, yeah, the COVID vaccine. vaccine. I'm sorry. Yeah. So again, it's under investigation. His wife claimed that this occurred because of the COVID vaccine. It's not known whether he had an ongoing issue like this before. Did he have an underlying issue that that was not recognized? Nobody knows. But it's under investigation. It's only this is the only thing we've seen. I I think. That was so dramatic, got a lot of press. I also looked at it and I thought, oh my God, because um, how could you not say that? But again, it's it's not known. People die from flu, young, healthy people, and people wonder what's happening there. And it could be because flu, flu itself, the illness itself, can exacerbate some underlying conditions that you already have. And there are people who die, and you hear this all the time, people who you know, basketball players, they're young, they're healthy, they are on the court, all of a sudden something happens and they, they die. And it's found out later that they had some kind of unknown, undiagnosed, unrecognized underlying condition that happens with flu also. It also could happen after a vaccine event, not related to the vaccine at all, that somebody dies because of this, of their underlying condition. But the time between a vaccine and their death, people want to know if those two are related. And oftentimes they're not, but the timing of it may make it seem as though they are related. So again, you have to look at the background rates of certain illnesses like Guillain-Barre or Bell's palsy and look at what happens after getting a vaccine. And sometimes 
the rates are very similar, which means that the vaccine itself doesn't increase the risk of getting one of these illnesses. Right, right. And uh, to, to that point, there's a 95% chance you're going to hear about this one in a million uh, event in the news and in this environment. Whereas uh, if somebody uh, suffers a sim- uh, suffers from a tragic incident that didn't get the vaccine, you're probably not going to hear about it. Right. And um, anybody who has a, 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 an adverse reaction to a vaccine, I mean, I they can they can report on this thing called VAERS. It's a CDC website. It's vaccine adverse something response. Anyway, it's a surveillance system. And attached to that system, there is an ability. I have tried to do this. I can't. If somebody's more computer savvy than me, you could actually go down and download the adverse events that have already been reported and look at them. Mm-hmm. I try to do it. I just couldn't. But there is an ability. If you go on that VAERS, it's a CDC website. Just go into, you could either just Google VAERS or cdc.gov backslash vaccine, and you'll get into this VAERS event. That's a place for people to submit their reactions. And somewhere there, there is, um, I think it's called Wonder. There is a downloadable way to actually look at adverse reactions. So if anybody is really that motivated, they can look to see what people are reporting. Yeah. And I'll, we'll link to that in the show notes uh, on our on our website, so uh, the listeners have a way to uh, a- access that link. A lot of the um, uh, hesitancy, reluctance that I, I've heard about is I, I think, is rooted in 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 just a general mistrust of our science community of our medical community which is rooted in we uh the u.s and uh, other countries too have a history of of lack of transparency of experimenting with minority communities why should people trust the process uh, that this vaccine has gone through and trust uh, or not trust or, or maybe ask questions or maybe be skeptical um w- what should people make of that, uh, of of the current vaccine program and how it was it was accelerated and how it was in part uh, pushed out by a, a federal government which has uh, had some mistakes on COVID, which has had uh, some commu- health communication mishaps over the last nine months and really over the last however many decades. So again, I mean, it's good to be skeptical. I get a lot of conspiracy videos sent to me all the time because I have a lot of friends who are very, very skeptical. You have to just really um, trust some people Um, because I've worked in this field for a while. There are people that I trust. I trust my my old commissioner, Tom Frieden, who was head of the CDC. I follow his Twitter account. So you just have to have some people that you trust. But in terms of the, this, the COVID vaccine, the mRNA vaccine, one thing was that, oh, it's so new. It's so different. It's so new. It's really not new. It's not brand new. People have been working on it for decades. It's just that now people were able to bring it to fruition. And part of that was Operation Warp Speed, which is a way to really maximize all the things that were happening already. 
And what vaccine development is a very, very long process. And usually it's sequential. You have to have data and money to go from step one to two to three. Operation Warp Speed helped make all those sequential steps become much more synchronized so that money was um, given to vaccine manufacturers to let them minimize their financial risk so that they were able to go through phase one, phase two, phase three studies and start vaccine development even before all the data came in. Normally that wouldn't happen because normally you wait for everything to come in because you don't want to take a risk of having something go wrong and having to start from square one. Here, they were able to take that risk. They also had a lot of regulatory issues that were being, um, there was collaboration in the regulatory front and there was collaboration in among the scientists working on different aspects of the vaccine. So again, I think in February of last year, they got the genetic sequence for the spy protein. A lot of people began to collaborate and share their information. So the sequencing was much faster because a lot of people were sharing information. Operation Warp Speed helped do the vaccine manufacturing process much quicker. So it wasn't that there were any shortcuts taken. In order to get the EUA, the emergency use authorization, the vaccine manufacturer had to go through a process of, of responding to vaccine safety and efficacy. It's not that they could dispose of that. That's not possible. But they were able to really manufacture it quicker because of the investments made both financially and in the collaboration phase of it. So it's not that this was just thrown together. It wasn't a cobbled together event. It was actually an incredible collaboration among many different types of people. Operation Warp Speed sort of just put it all together. But again, I just want to, I did not have stock in this at all. But again, I'm not that smart a person. So I really like to listen to a lot of podcasts of people that I think I admire. So early on in that pandemic, I got this thing in my Facebook called, it was a video from somebody called ZDogMD, Z-D-O-G-G-M-D. And I started listening to this person. He's a physician from Stanford um, who has this podcast, but he has many, many amazingly famous people who've done a lot of studies. So just last night, in order to prepare for this, I was listening to somebody named Paul Ophit, who was really very, very big in the vaccine world. So the podcasts here are not just Z-Dog himself speaking about things ex extemporaneously. He interviews people who are really, really well-versed in what they're speaking about, people who've done research, who really know what they're talking about. So the very, very beginning of the, of, the, of the pandemic he had on this person called Michael Osterham, who in the public health world is really very, very big. So he's somebody that I listen to and that I really believe in only because I believe in the people that he has on. So I guess you have to just trust somebody or some group of people and just listen to their, not, they're not guiding me. They're just, they're just giving out information. I have to evaluate it myself. As a uh, for someone that's not in the high, not in the science community, what what should people look out for in order to determine whether someone is actually qualified to talk about this uh, this topic versus someone who is just has a large internet following? Like uh, I know, see, like are there certain organizations that, but are there certain um, credentials? 
that people should look out for, or uh, or maybe if a, cred- a certain credential is omitted, maybe that's a red flag. Um, how can people distinguish between a legitimate, trustworthy source versus um, versus a fear mongering YouTube celebrity? It's kind of it's kind of hard to do that. I mean, I have my own, you know, people that I followed during my career. Every time I get a, a video that people send me and they send me a lot. I look up the person, I look to see what they've written, I look to see what's what is behind their stance. I do a lot of Google searches on people that I hear about. Some people I know just because I've I've been in this world for 30 years. So some people I follow, I still I look at the CDC I look at ARP usually has people that, that have been vetted in some way. I look for organizations that I, that I, I guess sort of trust in, um, like yours. The videos that I get from people are some kind of sort of outliers. There are people who have credentials. Some, a lot of people that I get videos of have PhDs in microbiology, but there's, if you Google further, you see that they have some hype around them that may make them seem less credible. You always look for, I was looking for some data. It's really, it's hard to say because I see in the, in the paper, I just was reading a paper recently about the fact that flu, having gotten flu vaccine increases the risk of COVID deaths. And I look at, and it just a paper based on, on looking at countries where there's a lot of flu vaccine uptake and COVID deaths. Again, that's a correlation, not a causation. So a lot of people will throw things at you and you just have to just sort of sit back. Every time I get anything, I try to Google many different aspects of it. I I read the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic Monthly. I try to look at some publications where I think they really look to see who they get information from. I think it's, it's very hard because I still have friends who are very smart who send me lots of things. And I keep thinking, are you are you kidding me? sending me this, this thing, but even my smart friends uh, believe things that I don't understand. Yeah. So I think it's very hard to tease out the hype from the maybe facts. Right, right. And there's, there's A, the barrier to entry on the internet is, is lower than it's ever, ever been. Um, and there's a lot of financial incentive to uh, not just financial incentive, but there are incentives to either willingly mislead the public or just maybe it's someone who actually just believes it and they're they're ill informed um and they they have an audience so yeah it's a i I asked you that looking looking for suggestions even just for myself, but there's really uh it's tough um it's it's tough to distinguish um who what what sources can be trusted and what sources can't especially for uh, people who are le- who are less uh, internet savvy, it's easy to to get mixed up and to be misled. So I don't I don't have a good good response to that. I just sympathize no, with. People. Yeah, but I think that um, ARP gives very simple webinars on different things. I think there's one tomorrow on on vaccination. I think it's ARP. I'm not quite sure. My calendar is full. A podcast and webinars. I never knew who I'm going to be listening to. I just, you know, jot everything down interesting in my in my journal and 
mm-hmm. try to find it again. Uh, so relatedly, we close we close our podcast with our guest recommendation segment, and we kind of just went over this in the previous question, but uh, I'll ask you it more explicitly. So I'm going to first ask you for a a long term care or a vaccine related book, article, movie. A- anything other than I'm going to ask you for something that doesn't have to do with, with vaccines or, or nursing homes. So let's start with, uh, with the, the vaccine or nursing home related. Well, I, I mean, really, it's what I said before for me, because recently there's been so many good podcasts on this thing called ZDog MD, YouTube, or I find it on YouTube. It really, for me, explained mRNA really simply, because again, I'm not that smart. I have to have things explained to me very, very slowly, very carefully. And I think that this, again, I have no stock in him whatsoever. I'm not, I don't even um, subscribe to him monthly. Maybe I should. Very, very easy explanations. And I've told all my, all the friends that I've, I've told about this said that it was just a really good way to understand basic science because, you know, I went to school 60, whatever, 50 years ago. I've forgotten all that science. So he just, he really explains it very, very carefully. All right, so yeah, I'll, I'll put the link to that. Um, I, and how about a a non nursing home related? Is there a, a book or a movie or a television show? This is actually a little nursing home related. Uh, it's a book I just finished called "The Things We Keep" by a woman named Sally Hepworth. I get free books from different people. It's um, a book about two people. Well, it's um, a person with early onset Alzheimer's who, in her thirties, who goes into a um, sort of an assisted living facility and she meets somebody there who has something similar and they fall in love. And it's just looking at the progression into dementia from the person who has it. Uh, That's one side of it. And then um, it's a book written in many, many different voices. And some of the voices are the caretakers. And this happens to be a very, very small facility, not like a nursing home, but it just shows what people can do to make the lives of people with dementia richer. Mm-hmm. You just have to think out of the box a little bit. So it's both looking at dementia from the person who has it and what that person is going through. That person is still around. You know, from the outside, they may look like they have severe dementia, but inside it's still them. And then looking at the healthcare workers around them. So again, it's not quite for nursing homes because it's sort of like an, an ideal way for people to live out their final years in a much smaller setting than a nursing home. And again, it's looking at the, in the future, if we have smaller, more intimate nursing homes, this is what they will look like, but just a really good, so kind of a feel good book about um, dementia and what people could actually, how people could respond around it. I think it's, it's, it's so important that we hear directly from the people um, Living in these facilities, um, uh, oftentimes we, uh, and I think I, uh, LTCCC could, could do a better job with this, but oftentimes we rely too much on the experts and the people that are kind of second degree sources of the residents themselves. And I think a book like that and storytelling like that, which is directly from the, the people, uh, involved can give us a really, valuable perspective. So that's, it was, it was the things we keep, right? The things we keep by Sally Hepworth. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. Uh, I I enjoyed this. Um, And I always, I I think I've now spoken to you four or five times. I always 
come away from it learning learning something new. Um, but but thanks so much uh, for pleasure. taking the time to talk about this. Okay, thank right. you.